The question for you this morning is, uh, how well do you know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? So do you know what Jesus said? Do you know why he said it? Do you know what he did and why he did it? Because uh, at the heart of the Christian faith is a, is a relationship with Jesus. At the heart of the Christian faith, it's not about obeying rules. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing certain things. It's about a relationship with a man called Jesus Christ. And like any relationship, the better you know somebody, the better your relationship. The better you know someone, the more you love them. So let me ask you again, how well do you know Jesus? There'll be people here this morning who will say, uh, I don't know Jesus at all. And I don't really want to know Jesus. I'm just sort of dragged along to church this morning. I've come under sufferance. I'd rather be sipping lattes in a cafe or still in bed. Uh, my prayer is that through John 18, you'll actually just meet Jesus. Uh, there'll be some here this morning who say, I don't know Jesus at all, but actually I'm quite interested. He intrigues me. Why do people sit in church on a Sunday morning rather than sip lattes in the cafe? Why are they here? If that is you, I do pray through John 18, you'll actually come to meet Jesus. Uh, my guess is there are people here who say, I, I know Jesus, I've known Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But you might say, if I'm really honest, uh, my relationship with Jesus is kind of like that sort of Facebook friend. You have some sort of idea of what's happening in their life, but you don't really know them. And I really want to know him better, more intimately this morning. There'll be others here who will say, I know Jesus really, really well. But like any marriage, I actually want to keep knowing him better and better and better. So wherever you're at on that spectrum this morning, same question, how well do you know Jesus? And do you want to know him better? You see, the relationship with Jesus is, is the most satisfying. It is the most complete relationship you'll ever have. Jesus offers you peace, he offers you hope, he offers you forgiveness, he offers you life, he offers you this friendship where he never, ever, 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 ever lets you down. Don't you want that kind of relationship? I've called this sermon Grace and Guilt in the Garden. Grace and Guilt in the Garden. Uh, let's focus on grace. So grab your Bibles and turn to John 18. And I will come down here. It's too far. 18 verse 1. Jesus has preached his last sermon. He's left the upper room. He's prayed that extraordinary prayer. And verse 1. After Jesus has said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. So we're heading east towards Mount Olives. And Jesus stops at a garden with his disciples. The other Gospels call it the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the word Gethsemane just means oil press. And Jesus and his disciples, verse 1, they went into it. When you hear that word garden, please don't think uh, the botanical gardens where anybody can wander in at any time. It's massive. You can get lost in it. Uh, please think sort of, you know, the end of Notting Hill, the where Hugh and Julie actually get together, that, sort of like that gated garden, the, the private garden where you have to have an entrance ticket to get in there. That's the kind of thing. It's a, it's a walled enclosure, a private garden. And as soon as you hear the word garden, you, you, your mind's supposed to go back to Genesis chapter 
2 and 3 where there's another garden, another man in the garden, the Garden of Eden. And that man disobeyed. How is this man going to behave in the garden? Uh, Let's keep reading. Judas who betrayed him, Judas the betrayer, he knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this is the place, the garden, where Jesus took his disciples to pray, to teach, to hang out together. And immediately you you learn something about Jesus, don't we? Do you spot that in verse 2? Jesus deliberately went to a place where he knew Judas could find him. Isn't that extraordinary? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He went to the place where he knew that Judas would, would find him. That's why Judas turns up in verse 3 with the company of soldiers and temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And you've got Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers and religious people. And there's up to like 500,000 people here. It's this crazy response. You've got one little man in a little garden with his disciples. You've got enough soldiers to defeat a whole city. And then you've got the moment of truth in verse 4. Is this the Jesus that you know? Verse 4. Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it you're looking for? Isn't that extraordinary? Look at that verse again. Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him. Is that the Jesus that you know? Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus knew that he would be facing a mockery of a trial. Jesus knew that he'd be found guilty. Jesus knew he would go to Calvary. Jesus knew he would die. He knows everything. He's in control of everything. Do you spot that in verse 4? It's Jesus who went out to meet them. Jesus steps out of the garden to meet his arresters. He controls the time. He controls the place. He's not a victim. Now, is that the Jesus that you know? Does your Jesus know everything, past, present, and future? Does the Jesus that you follow know you and know everything that's going to happen in your life? He knows everything about you. Now, we like to know things, don't we? Especially control freaks like me. We like to know things and plan things and we plot and we plan as though we know everything that's going to happen today and the next day and the next month. But the reality is that none of us know anything, do we? Put your hand up here this morning if you know exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow. We don't, do we? But Jesus does. He knows everything. Is that the Jesus that you know and follow? Let's keep reading verse 5. Who is it you're looking for? Jesus and Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Jesus, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am he, they, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Isn't that a bizarre reaction? You've got 500 soldiers and en masse, they, they take a step backwards and they, they fall to their feet like this, their knees like this. And they think, what are they doing? Are they in shock? What they're doing is they're responding to the words of Jesus. Because Jesus uses the word, I am, ego am I. And again, if you know your Bibles, that's the title for God. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just the bread of life. I'm not just the resurrection of life. I'm not just the true vine. I am God. 
It's a beautiful moment in the Gospels because before the soldiers can arrest Jesus, they will first bow the knee to Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And just for a moment, even those who are going to arrest him are on their knees before the living God. Now, is that the Jesus that you know? A fully God. I am, he says. I am God. Exalted to the highest place, given the name of every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Is that the Jesus that you know? That, that one day you're going to bow to him whether you like it or not. One day everybody, every man, boy, woman and child will bow the knee to Jesus whether they want to or not. Either believing or unbelieving. And you've got a beautiful moment of grace in verse 7 onwards. He asked them again, who is it you're looking for? Jesus and Nazarene, they said. I told you I'm he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he'd said, I've not lost one of those you've given me. Isn't that a beautiful moment of grace? If you're looking for me, Jesus says, let these men go. Jesus says, take me, but don't harm these men. Choose me and arrest me, but let these people go. Remember, Jesus just prayed in John 17, protect them. Please protect them. That's exactly what Jesus does. He's willing to give himself up on the behalf of others to let these people go. Another moment of grace is there in verse 10. Simon Peter, impetuous Peter, fiercely defending Jesus. He pulls out a dagger, a short sword, and he strikes the high priest's slave, and he cuts off the right ear. I love the details there. Uh, the detail of the slave's name is Malchus, which means my king. It's a moment of grace because Jesus actually heals the ear in the other Gospels, and it's gracious for Malchus because he, he can still hear, and it's gracious for Peter because Peter actually deserves to be arrested at this point because Peter is the guilty one. But Jesus spares him. Is that the Jesus that you know? He, he knows everything. He's fully God. You will bow the knee to him. He cares for his followers. He protects his followers. But you ready for the high point of this passage? This is the moment of truth in verse 11. If you do not understand this about Jesus, your Jesus will be one-dimensional. Look at verse 11. And that Jesus said to Peter, Sheath your sword... Am I not to drink the cup the Father's given me? Now, Jesus is not talking about a cup of champagne. He's not talking about a cup of water or a cup of Coke. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about here? There are lots of cups in the Bible. There's a cup of blessing in Psalm 23, but he's talking about the cup of wrath. We read about it in Psalm 75, the cup of wrath, the, the cup of God's anger, God's righteous anger. God's fierce anger at wickedness and rebellion and sin. Now, I know that many people don't like the concept of, of a wrathful God, but a, a wrathless God, a God who is not angry at wrong things, is like an insipid, weak fool, isn't he? You can't just sweep things under the carpet. I mean, you know when you, you see things which are wrong, you know that there needs to be justice, don't you? When someone does the wrong thing, you know that there needs to be punishment. 
If you're a parent, you know that. Why do you keep doing that? I've told you not to do it. Why don't you do what I asked you to do the tenth time? God, our maker, who loves us, when he sees us doing the wrong thing, when we fail to do the right thing, he is rightly angry. The problem is not with us, it's with God's wrath. What do you do with God's wrath? How do you turn away God's wrath? How can you face God? Look again at verse 11. Am I not to drink the cup the Father's given me? When I was young, I used to collect stamps. Bit of a nerd. If you're a stamp collector, you need this, don't you? You you look at your stamp and think, oh, that's interesting. It's from Cambodia. Uh, These are really good for stamp collectors. What what, what else are these good for? For seeing. They're really good for burning your big sister on the leg. (laughs) If you get it exactly the right angle, with the sun's rays, just focus onto one point and you hold it really, really, really still with your big sister, you can cause her to squeal in pain. See, if all the sun's rays are focused onto one point, that is quite painful, isn't it? Now imagine that you've got this massive, massive, massive magnifying glass. And through that magnifying glass, God's wrath, God's anger at the Rwandan genocide, God's anger at the horrors of the Holocaust, God's anger at the starvation of innocent boys and girls. God's anger at the murderer of Daniel Morecambe. God's anger at every perpetrator of violence and rape and perjury and greed and violence and wickedness and God's anger at my selfishness and God's anger at my pride and God's anger at my lying and my gossip and my jealousy and God's anger at my hatred and God's anger at all the sins of the world that has been poured through this, this one massive magnifying glass and they're being focused down, 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 down to one point at one time in history. You go drip, drip, drip into one cup. And that is the cup of God's wrath that all sins, past, present and future for every man, every boy, every woman, every girl in the whole of history into one cup. And that is what Jesus is about to face. In the other Gospels, it's said that at this moment in time, he's on his knees praying, Lord, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will. He doesn't want to drink the cup. There must be some other way to turn back God's anger than for Jesus, the innocent one, to drink this cup. Am I not to drink the Father's cup, he says? I don't want to, but of course I'll do it. Do you understand what it took for Jesus to drink that cup? Jesus, the innocent one, who has never, ever, ever experienced anything but but the embrace of his father, the love of his father. And as soon as he drinks that cup, he's about to face the wrath of his father. When When he drinks that cup, he's about to face the anger of his father. When he drinks that cup, he's about to be separated from his father. Why would he do that? He didn't need to do it, did he? 
Why would he do it? Because he saw you. And he saw me and he loved you and he loved me. Because he knew that we'd faced the wrath of our Father. And he wanted us to spare us from that. And so he would drink it instead of us. Isn't that extraordinary? And then he goes to Calvary and... Do you know what happened at the cross? As he hung there to die, do you know what happened? What happened to the sun? It stopped shining as darkness came over the whole land. Darkness is a symbol of wrath. Darkness is a symbol of judgment. Because God's wrath, God's judgment is being poured out on Jesus instead of us. God's wrath is being poured out on his son instead of me and instead of you. And then Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he's saying there, I've drunk the cup to the dregs. There's no more to drink. There's no more judgment to pay. There's no more price to pay. It's done. It's finished. God's wrath has been turned away. God's wrath has been propitiated. So you and I can face God on that last day with confidence and with peace. Because you're not going to face the wrath of your father. Because Jesus has faced it for you. Isn't verse 11 extraordinary? Am I not to drink the cup the Father's given me? Now is that the Jesus that you know? The one who drank the cup reserved for you? The one who faced the agony and the pain and the isolation and the horrors that he went through for you? Let's keep reading verse 12. The company of soldiers, the commanders, the Jewish temple police, they arrested Jesus and they tied him up. Can you imagine that? The hands of the creator are now bound. The hands that gathered children to himself. The hands that healed. The hands that flung stars into space. The hands that fed 5,000 people. They're now bound like, like an animal. That's the picture. Just like you would bind a lamb being led to the slaughter. That's Jesus. Hands behind his back, ready to be sacrificed. Is that the Jesus that you know? Bound for you? Dying for you? And there's deep irony in the rest of the chapter. You've got these two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. But look at verse 19. Do you spot the irony here? The high priest, Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. What's, what's ironic about that? Who is Jesus? He's not just the Son of God. He's not just the Messiah. Who is Jesus? He is the high priest, isn't he? He's God's great high priest. He's the one who gives you access to the throne room of heaven. It's the audacity of a human imperfect high priest to question God's perfect high priest. But Jesus is willing to do that because he wants to give us access to the Father. And I could continue with great truths about Jesus in his chapter, but let's just stop there. Is that the Jesus that you know? He's in control of everything. He knows everything. He took the bitter cup reserved for you. He turned away God's wrath at your sin. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter for you. He's the high priest who intercedes for you. Do you know him? How well do you know him? There's a story of a, of a mother who's sitting downstairs watching TV and suddenly there's this loud 
bang upstairs. And she goes upstairs and finds her son James and he's lying on the floor next to his bed. And the mum says to James, James, what happened? And James said, I stayed too close to where I got in. Isn't that a cute answer? I stayed too close to where I got in. And I just wonder whether for some of us here we've stayed too close to where we got in. Your understanding of Jesus is very kids' church level. I mean, Super Sunday is amazing, and they're going to learn that Jesus died on the cross for them. But for some of you, that's where you—that's just where you're at. Your knowledge of Jesus hasn't gone much beyond that. And you know, in any relationship, if you want a superficial relationship, if you want a surface level relationship, just don't bother getting to know each other too well. You can go through life with lots of superficial, surface level relationships, and They never really satisfy. But if you want to go deep with Jesus, if you want to grapple with what it means for Jesus to know everything, to be in control of everything, to deal with your anger, to be substituted for you, to be the innocent one, to be the high priest, the multi-dimensional, jewel, diamond-like qualities of Jesus, if you want to plumb the depths of who Jesus is, then your relationship with Jesus will be beyond the surface level. It will be this intense Intimate, joyful, peaceful, satisfying relationship. It's like the best possible marriage where he never, ever, 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 ever lets you down. He always keeps his word. The deeper you know him, the more you love him. But the reality is no matter how well you know him, Sometimes it's really difficult to keep on following him, isn't he? And that's why I love Peter in this chapter. Because Peter is the, the kind of mirror to me, and probably the mirror to you as well. Peter is like this picture of human failure and human faithlessness. Uh, Peter was the, was the man who had said to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. He's the man who got out his sword to defend Jesus. But you visibly watch him move from defending Jesus to dishonoring Jesus, from being in love with Jesus to denying Jesus. And you're thinking, how could he do that? Look at verse 15. Meanwhile, Simon Peter, he was following Jesus as was another disciple. We assume that's John. Uh, That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside the door. I think that's his first mistake. Peter chose not to go in. Peter didn't stay with Jesus. He kept his distance. And then this slave girl, verse 17, says, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? It's a loaded question, isn't it, verse 17? It's not a straight question. She's not asking do you go to church? It's that kind of, you're not one of those, those born-again Christians, are you? I remember sitting in a pub in Oxford and a friend of mine sitting across the table with a beer in the hand and uh, he said to me, you're not one of those weirdo Christians, are you? He's not asking, do you go to church? He's saying, are you really one of those full-on believers in Jesus? And that's the moment of truth, isn't it? 
What are you going to do in the office on a Tuesday morning when your boss says to you, you're not one of those weirdo Christians, are you? What are you going to do in the, the schoolyard on Wednesday morning when someone says, you're not one of those born-again people, are you? It's safe here, isn't it, on a Sunday morning? We're not embarrassed to say, yeah, I follow Jesus here on a Sunday morning, but what about there, at your workplace, at your school? I mean, the easy option is just to talk about church and talk about all the nice things that church does, like running nice kids' clubs and helping the poor and the needy, because people like to hear that stuff, don't they? But will you stand up and say, yeah, I am a follower of Jesus? Or will you be like Peter? What does he say, verse 17? I am not, he said. Not once, not twice, but three times. Verse 25, he denies that I'm not. Verse 27, Peter denies it again, and the cock crowed. Now, why do I identify with, with uh, Peter so much? Because there are times when I'm tempted to be quiet about my faith. There are times where it's very tempting just to pretend that you're not really one of these full-on followers of Jesus. Why did Peter do it? It could have been lack of courage, couldn't it? Do you ever face that, that sort of fear factor? What I found is that the more honest I am, the more upfront I am, the more people are willing to actually just accept you. They actually respect you for holding a certain belief. What they don't respect is when you try and like the double life and pretend that you don't believe so you really do believe. Or the fear factor of wanting to be liked by people who, and you think that they will think something bad about you if they really knew what you believe. Well, try it. Tell them what you believe. Often they don't think that you're an absolute nutter. They just don't agree with you, but they respect you. It could have been lack of courage. I actually think it's a lack of conviction. That Jesus and his death and his sin-crushing death didn't really fit into Peter's view of what the Messiah should do. Because Peter was the one back in early in the gospel when Jesus said, who do you say I am? And he said, oh, you're the Messiah. And, and then Jesus said, that's right, I am the Messiah and I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And what did Peter say at that point? No way. You're not going to do that, Jesus. And, and, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter's view of Jesus isn't the biblical view of Jesus at this point. And maybe that's your problem, that when Jesus' claims don't fit into your worldview, you're tempted to deny him. And when his mission doesn't fit into your mission, you're tempted to deny him. See, I identify with Peter because sometimes I lack courage. And I identify with Peter because sometimes... I do have this crisis of conviction. Is Jesus really this, who he says he is? But do you know the real reason I identify with Peter? The reason I love Peter so much is that Peter is this walking, talking, 
living, breathing advertisement of God's restoring, redeeming, loving forgiveness. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Not once, not twice, but three times. If you were looking for a man who was going to head up your church after you died, I don't think you would choose the man who would blatantly, publicly, consistently, persistently deny you, would you? Well, flick over to John 21. Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised again. Who do we find eating breakfast together? John 21, verse 15. Who do we find sipping lattes on the beach? When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. A second time he asked him, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Shepherd my sheep. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So that's why I love Peter. Just like me. And just like you, he is a, a sinner who at times does the wrong things and says the wrong things. But, but Jesus loves him and Jesus restores him and Jesus accepts him. Is that the Jesus that you know who will always welcome you back? No matter what you've done or how far you've wandered. Is that the Jesus that you know who will never turn his back on you and no matter how often you fail and how often you, 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 you dishonor him and disobey him or say, come back, come back, come back. So I love Peter. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned and clean. See, Jesus does know everything. Jesus is in complete control of everything. Jesus has drunk the cup of wrath for you. Jesus has been banned and died for you. And just like Peter, Jesus longs to restore you and to reconcile you and to welcome you home. So what do you do? What, what do you need to do just to be reconciled to this Jesus? Just humbly just get on your knees. Just bow before him and say, Lord, would you really drink the cup for me? Did you really love me that much? Did you really die for me? I don't deserve that. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. That's all you need to do. Just say thank you. And trust that he is who he said he is. Please keep knowing Jesus. Plumb in the depths of Jesus. Let me give you a moment's silence. 
just to think about your own relationship with Jesus. Where are you? How well do you know him? on the cross as Jesus died the, the wrath of God was satisfied Lord God in heaven we, we praise you that the cup has been drunk drunk to the dregs we, we praise you that there's no more wrath to be faced that he's turned it all away we praise you for our Lord Jesus who loves us who restores us who redeems us who welcomes us home We praise you for the way that you constantly forgive us when we keep on wandering. For the times we've dishonored you, for the times we've disowned you, for the time we're just tempted just to just try and sideline you. We praise you that you keep on welcoming us home because you did it all and you paid it all. We praise you in Jesus' name.